I'm not so sure I can connect with that. Maybe you can't either. Do you love laws and law in your life? I mean, think about what's behind that kind of statement. There's a sense in which law represents this external force upon your life. There's something external to me binding me and telling me what to do. That just cuts against everything I breathe in this culture that has this sort of uh, sense of, of not wanting external force. Remember, we're, we're America. We don't like kings and authorities like this and institutional authorities. And you start getting all that. And so, so I begin to, to hear that. And perhaps you're like most of the folks that I just don't relate to that. I don't really say I love the law. With, you know, I love and I delight in your law. Um, you know, there's this amazing philosophical event that took place about 150, 200 years ago. And this thing started to trickle down, and this idea of expressive individualism, this I express who I am, I make who I am, and, and uh, it, it really had a very anti-authoritarian and, and not a respect for the offices of authority. And the only time I want to give you authority in my life is to have a personal relationship with you, and it's all about relationship, but not this external sense of authority. And, and that, of course, began to nurture and nurture and then we came to the 60s, and you had this incredible revolution. Really incredible. Historians are still writing about it. We're just beginning to get into the historiography on what happened in the 60s and the 70s. started with a youth revolt, and it turned into a cultural revolt. And if time progresses, we now live in an era that, that is this kind of modern revolt and more, as it's now become almost institutionalized, and it's part of pop culture. Can you say, I love your law, O Lord. I delight in it. And then, of course, we come into the church. What many describe as a very good, and we would describe it that way, but a good gospel-centered movement. And I wonder, you know, can we within this church that's part of that rediscovery of the, the vitality and the power of the gospel, are we, are we capable of saying, oh, I Love your law, Lord. I want to think about it all the time. Can we go there? Can we say that? I say all this because when we come to this passage, there's a sense of a, of a recheck, a refocus, because Paul then would, would, in the tradition of the psalmist, say, no, the law is good. The law is good. And that's what I hope that we will conclude today, to try to understand what what Paul means by that, and, and keeping in mind that this whole book is written into a context where, where Timothy, particularly this book, this First Timothy book, is, is situated, in a, is driven out of a context that there are these false prophets and prophesying elders and pastors who are now in this multi-congregational movement in and around Ephesus, where some of the congregations are are moving away from the, the teaching, the foundational teachings of the apostles and prophets. There were two issues, particularly, if you remember, that, that, uh, that was going on there. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, you wouldn't remember. So I'm going to tell you very briefly that, that one of those topics was, was the issue of, of continuing revelation. And that there was this, this idea of prophesying by the Holy Spirit wherein, wherein there was this continuing revelation of laws and rules or continuing revelation of taking away laws and rules. 
if you will. And so there's a continuing revelation often associated with emotional experiences and you know, you have these rationalizations and, and, and then you, you, you wait for God to put some kind of an experience in your life, some kind of an event in your life that would validate what your rationality is saying. And so, indeed, it's not without cause. It's, it's not so goofy as you think. It's prevalent today all over. In fact, more, maybe more so even than in Paul's day, where we can equate these emotional experiences with with these rational thoughts that I have associated with that and therefore conclude God is speaking to me. God is telling me to do something. And it becomes a law, a rule. It binds conscience, thinking it's God. So that was one of the big problems. But then the second problem, he said, was if you remember, and I quote, these pastors, these elders, they didn't know what they were talking about. That's a quote, by the way. They did not know what they, are, they do not know what they were talking about. And he's specifically talking about their use of the law, their understanding of the law, which is why in this passage, having just said the things that I told you, he makes this transition actually, and you could read it in the transition, actually, the law is good if used lawfully. Whoa, there you go. That's the question. What would it mean to use the law lawfully? And if we were to do it that way, that we would then say, coming out of that, the law is good. In fact, I love the law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time you give us now to to hear your word, your law, your covenant brought to us now to be made alive in the mystery of the Holy Spirit through a sermon. Come, Lord Jesus, be present. Clarify our minds but also give us wills to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Well, to be sure, the, the, uh, this problem, as I've described, now the issue is sending Timothy uh, into Ephesus to, to correct them, to get this thing all straightened out. And reminding you of who Timothy is, because this is important how we're going to do this, is Timothy, he called, as a son of faith. Uh, uh, this is a guy who who later in the passage, actually in 2 Timothy, he describes as someone who, who literally had gone to the seminary of the Apostle Paul, who had been trained by him and nurtured by him and mentored by him. He's his finest protege. He is his mentee. He's the mentee of Paul. And you'll remember that he was associated with Paul in sending all sorts of other letters. He's named as with Paul sending a letter to Romans. Well, that's quite a theological treatise. He's named with Paul as sending a letter to the Corinthians and Philippians and, and others. And, um, and so this is a guy that Paul is writing to, but he's presuming to know what he's talking about already. And that's key because, because right when you say, when he says, well, the law is good when used lawfully, and then he doesn't tell you much about what used lawfully means. He's going to hit on a few topics, as you'll see, over the course of the next couple of weeks, but... But he doesn't go and ex- explore that in a deep and theological sense right here. He assumes that Paul, that Timothy, knows exactly what he's talking about. And so what we're going to do is we're going to explore that question, what does it mean to use the law lawfully? But we're going to utilize texts from other sources of Paul. Paul. Texts that we know for a fact, for instance, in Romans' example, he knows that Timothy was very acquainted in, and had been trained and schooled in these very principles. And so with that backdrop in mind, 
let's look at this, this question. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And again, evidently, there are some who are not using it lawfully. They were using it badly. They're not well. What does this mean? Well, again, uh, what I would start with here is, is that throughout the teachings of Paul, Paul is constantly, constantly saying in many different and furious forms that the whole law is good. That is to say, not part of it. And then he's also going to say that, that, that the whole law is good, but then he's going to also say, but nothing but the law. Nothing but that which has been prophesied and is given as through this apostolic tradition of interpreting the law into the new covenant. And that's the gist of what this first issue is. What is the right use of God, uh, of God's law? It's that you would not take anything away back, take, take anything away from it. You're going to regulate your use of the law as to preserve the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ. That's key. We're going to admit of another, no other authority by which we would either distract from or take away from persons of the law, reduce it in the law, or expand the law. And he's going to talk about this. It's not going to be traditions. He says this in Ephesians, the very place he's sending uh, Timothy. He talks about in Timothy that it's not traditions of men. And he's going to say also not private speculations or private revelations. Two ways in which we to take away from the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ over our consciences. Very important. For instance, Acts 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training and righteousness. You see, it's, it's, a, it's the plenary, it's the whole of scripture. And it's the scripture alone that is sufficient. It's, we don't need to add to it. So those are two words. You know, the plenary, holistic, full inspiration of God and the sufficiency of what has been inspired by God into scripture. So there's your law. Again, in continuity, I'm going to deal with the old in a minute, in continuity with the old. And so that's, a, that's the first thing. But what I really want to hone in on is the second thing. And that is the use of the law. That is the idea of, of how is it that, um, what, what is the purpose of the law, the Old Testament law, and this greater story of salvation? Now that's where particularly Romans is incredibly helpful. That is, think of the law is, which was given to Adam. And I, again, for the sake of time, just we're going to say, it, yeah, the law originally, maybe in a less scripted form, as you'll see in a minute, but in some manifestation, do this and don't do this was given to Adam. Of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being an expression of that law. All reduced to, I am exclusively your Lord. God, the creator, is your Lord. And so it's from the teachings of Paul elsewhere, we know that there is Three uses, then, of how this begins to move through the story of salvation. And that's what I want to really hone in on you right now. In other words, notice what he says secondly. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then what does he say next? Understanding, and here's the key, 
that this law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedience. And then he begins to quote literally the second half of the Decalogue. I mean, he, he doesn't quote it, I'm sorry. He references exactly the five second parts of the Decalogue. That is the way we relate to our neighbor. We're going to get to that next week and start getting into that next week. But for now, I'm very curious about this little word, just. That the law is not laid down for the just. That, why couldn't he have just said the lawless or the lawful? Why couldn't he have just said for the obedient ones? See, that's how, if you extract this from Paul, and even if you extract it from the rest of what he's going to say here, that we would just miss the point. At first, what I think I'm hearing is only a very slight part of what I think Paul would mean. Because if, let me read it again. Understanding that this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedience. Okay, got it. It's not for me. That's how some people interpret it. Oh, that's always for those bad people. You know, those bad people. And that's one way you could interpret this. It's for those bad people who, who uh, need to be reined in. It's to restrain evil. That's all it's supposed to do is to restrain evil. It's to keep them in tow. That would be a very simple and trite reading of that passage. If you put it into the teachings of Paul, and particularly into the greater story of redemption. But it's an element of it, to be sure. But actually, there's something deeper going on. This idea of the just, literally, is this idea of, it's, it's, it's not for those who have, are right with God, who are justified with God, at least in this sense of, of being broken now from God. It's an order for those who are unjustified to become just. I were to spell it out. Let me tell you the story. So the story is this, that it all began with Adam and Eve, of course. There's a law given to Adam and Eve. They're created in the image of God, to imitate God in his glory. Their purpose in life was to image God, to reveal God. Now, I know that does a reset button on on the world, our cosmology. What, What does the world revolve around? It really comes down to this. The purpose of the world and you and me is to glorify God. He is only and the only one worthy of having a purpose for the purpose of the world. I mean, if I were to say to you the purpose of the world is for me, Preston Graham, you'd say you're a megalomaniac. You'd be right. But God, only God, infinite and eternal in his being, most holy, most wise, most good, most love, everything, he's, he's the, he is perfect. You don't know perfection. There's nothing in your life that you know perfect. He's perfect. He's the unmoved mover. He's the, he's in my scientific background, I'm sorry I'm going to bluff this, but I can't remember the covalent bonds, the ionic bonding, but he's the one where the, everything stops moving to perfect itself. It stops right there. Is that close? Kind of. <laughs> I mean, just imagine a world that's not constantly in flux trying to improve itself. And I don't know about this third law of dynamic stuff, so don't even tell me there. But that's the idea. So that God, holy, other God, creates a a, a reality whose purpose is to glorify, to image God. And law becomes, therefore, a means by which we are to 
be instructed and guided in that vocational purpose, that royal priestly purpose given unto humanity that we might image God. It was before the fall. There's your first purpose. The purpose of the law, which is to reveal God and to enable us to fulfill our destiny as priests and kings under God for the sake of revealing God to the cosmos. This aspect of God and this purpose of the God is, is then directing us as to what is good and bad. It's, it's, it's leading us. It's guiding us. It's a use that, that, that tells me now, post-fall, as you get further post-fall, the law now becomes increasingly more robust, increasingly more, more scripted, if you will. We come to the Mosaic Uh, Through the patriarchal, there's some laws and commands, but by the time we get to Moses, we now have the Ten Commandments in explicit formation, and those only serving as titles to chapters, literally, on what it means to do each of those Ten Commandments, all scripted out. You see where this is going. As humanity enters into their sin, the law's first purpose, which is to direct humanity into how to live, has to get increasingly more scripted and increasingly more codified in a manner in which we can be instructed as to work against our sin and our ignorance concerning what it means to glorify God. And so there's your first purse of the law. It says, for instance, listen to the way Romans 7.5 says it. It says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now notice what's happening there. It's not that the law is sinful and aroused sin in us. It's that the law aroused us insofar as it enabled us to see how far we are away from the law. And therefore, how close we were getting to being excluded from the life of God, which is death. Very interesting. Because now that gets us into the second use of the law. If the first use is just to explain to us how to live our life and to glorify God and, and, and give us a sense of what is right and wrong and how to live it, the second part here is is now that that it's going to expose to us our sin. It's going to lead us to understand something that's very deep here. And let me make sure I understand what I mean by that. It's not that the law is just going to now teach us as to what sin is and what sins there are. To be sure, that's true. But the object of this conviction of sin is to direct us to a point of utter exasperation. To utter frustration as we begin to see that there's something deeper in us than just our sins. That is to say, it's going to direct us to discern our sins, small s, but eventually it's going to move us to discern our sin, capital S. The sin of rejecting God the sin that made ourselves autonomous to God. 
and the impossibility, something's wrong with our heart. Something's wrong with me. And I can't, if I'm going to get back to the promise that God made to Adam, and if I'm going to be reconciled to God because of the sins that take me away, I can't do it. I keep trying, and I keep trying. Paul will go on to say in chapter 7, the very things I want to do, I just can't seem to do it. I, I, I swore after my last argument with my dad, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to respect him. I'm going to be good. And then two days later, man, I'm just right back at it. There's something wrong. The parent who gives a little child something to play says, you know, here, you can play with this, you know, but, but don't put it in your mouth. Don't put it in your mouth. How long? Yeah, first use of the law. Here's what you do with this object. You play this way with it. You don't play this way with it, right? But how long will it take for that little child to put it in his mouth? I mean, what happens to you when someone says, don't do this? <clears throat> you do it. And we're talking seconds, probably, depending on how the youth get. And sure, we'll first say, oh, the little child, he's just underdeveloped, he's just a cute little baby, babies are doing those things, and, and, and everything's fine. And then the child grows up into this little adolescence, and then we're going to say, you know what, you know, you know, there's a lot of hormones going on in this kid. Poor kid, I remember when I was that gangly little adolescent guy, and, Man, it's a hard place to be in life. I'm going to give you the excuse. You know, besides, they got a lobotomy in the front of their head. You know, their rationality fully developed, but man, there's just, they got about 10 years before this part of the brain, you know, the one that has not just reason and rationality, but the part that doesn't even mature till they say, what is it, 25 years old or six or something like that, where, where, you, where it's fully developed this capacity to have values and to understand values that would drive your rationality. Cerebral cortex. And so we, we kind of explain that away. Oh, well, it's part of growing up, you know, and kids will be kids, you know. But guess what? <laughs> Eventually, these rationalizations, these excuses, these kind of things, and if you're the person going through this life, all of a sudden you realize, hold it, I never kind of keep stopping at this. It just could, I mean, I had my argument with my girlfriend, and I can't believe I said that. I'm so selfish. I will, I will never be selfish again. Everything I don't ever want to do again. I'm Lord, I vow to you. I will never be selfish again. I mean, it's laughable, isn't it? Most of you, do you understand how laughable that is? I mean, imagine, because that's what the heart of the law is, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. I will forever. Oh, I'm 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 earnest, God. I will love everybody forever and ever and ever. More than I love myself, because that's what you told me to do. You won't even get by the morning. I'll guarantee. So what happens? The second use of the law. It convicts us of sin and brings us to a Savior. At some point, the law's purpose is to bring us to the place where we recognize, as Paul will say in Romans 3, that even your best righteousness is as filthy rags compared to the glorious nature righteousness that you were created to imitate and you will fall on your knees and you will then be led to this one Jesus Christ through the course of the history of of scripture even an aspect of the covenant that God made to Adam when he promised the seed 
that would abolish evil. The promise that's given to Abraham. The promise that's given to Moses. Even, in, even exacted and, and typified, if you will, it, in the temple system, in the sacrificial lamb. I'm brought, I'm drawn to the sacrificial lamb. Someone who is, who is representation of the perfect righteousness that I'm not. Who would then suffer the penalty of my unrighteousness under the just sentence of God or curse of God, which is death. And I'm brought finally to that place. And I cry out to God, oh, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Really? No, I'm not just, I, I, I lust after iPhones. Sinner. Yeah, I do that. Oh, I'm, I don't mean I'm just kind of trying to get rich every once in a while. Or I don't mean I'm just trying to have a little fun every once in a while and kind of, you know, do what I want to do. I mean there's something sick in me. Curse in my heart. I need a savior. You're brought, you're undone, you're broken. Second use of the law. Third use of the law is described as well. How it is then that this third use, it says, so Paul in this chapter 7 goes, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work, and our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the curse of the law, having died to that which held us captive, and of course in the context, by faith in Jesus Christ. Now we got one, two, now here's the third. Go on, chapter 7. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now what is he saying there? See, the written code is what increased as time and, and living post-fall increased. And the Spirit is not to, to diminish the written code, that is, the codification of it, what was given to Adam, this, what was happening here was that we, we discovered that we had not the will, we had not the spirit, that glory of God living within us that enabled us, empowered us to see, to be enlightened. And so now what he's talking about in the context of Romans here is how the Holy Spirit gives us a new nature, gives us a new heart. As Moses promised that one day you'll be circumcised in the heart, as Jeremiah said, one day you receive the new covenant where the law, it said, will be written in your heart. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, so the next use of the law is for those now who've been born again by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, who are now restored to the original purpose of the law. We're restored. Now, remember? Get this through. Before, pre-fall, if you will, it was, it was, a, it was a, a manifestation of God's glory and holiness and righteousness given to us as a means by which we could discern how best to glorify God and fulfill our destiny as the image of God, the royal priest of God on earth. The second use of this law is as it becomes more codified, especially is, is to expose our sins and to eventually exasperate the you-know-what out of us to the point where I am undone by the law. It condemns me because of my sinful passions that consistently take me in a different direction to the point, again, of throwing up my hands and saying, have mercy, God. I need something to change that I can't change. 
And there's your second use, guiding us to the one who can, Jesus Christ. The third use is now that we've been reconciled to God, justified by a substitute law keeper, him crediting crediting his righteousness to us. Now I'm not afraid of the law anymore. Before I hated the law. I hated it because it exposed my sins, and yet I was still on this, this bastardly destiny of trying to prove that I could do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to discern right and wrong. I'm going to be autonomous. I can make myself happier than you can make me, God. And now we're in the third. You reconciled to God, but now also his law. You understand what I'm saying? The law doesn't condemn you because you've now been made righteous. And now you're set free to go back to the original purpose of the law, which was to direct me and guide me And I do it now knowing full well that God loves me and he's for me, he's not against me. And therefore no law would ever be given to me but that which would make me to more live abundant life. And I'm willing now with this new nature to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because there'll be laws that on the surface don't give me immediate gratification. He's going to tell me to do things, but he then tells me that when he tells me to do these things, if I do them, I'm going to suffer for it. But somehow... We're given the capacity more and more to step back and say, hold on here. While I may not have an immediately gratifying experience, I will discern in the long run that I will be more satisfied. It's the person who who discerns that their own righteousness as revealed through trying to be a man pleaser can never fully satisfy me because humans are never fully happy with me that finally turns away from man-pleasing and says, I would, be, I, would be ra- I would rather be set free from the bondage of human-pleaser and yet suffer a few moments in life where I'm not pleasing humans and I'm getting their sort of wrath, if you will, versus living my life under the idol of man-pleasing and not being set free from worrying about it. <laughs> or I, one day you think, you know, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to achieve this. I'm, I'm giving my whole life to getting into the school or, or getting into this profession. And I get there. Guess what's going to happen, taking it from a guy that's almost 60 years old, even when it comes to the church, my profession. Oh, about time you're 60, you're going to realize the church, just being the church, can't satisfy me. If I made that my idol. The job being a pastor can't satisfy me if I'd made that my idol. At some point, I need to be set free from that too. As a child of God, first. Do what I do, not for immediate gratification, not just so that you guys will like me or hire me. Do it because of the joy of doing it. To the glory of God, period. That is a freedom that Paul said, I pray for. He had Philippians and Timothy was part of that. I pray for the freedom to be set free. From the fear of man. I pray that, 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 you know, that, that, that I will share in the sufferings of Christ if in fact that it will enable me to now transcend fear of people. And he goes on to say, there's nothing you can do to me. Would that be a place to be if you were a man pleaser? Set free from man pleasing? And that being your whole purpose in life? And again, that's just one of many idols. Are you getting this? The third use of the law? having been saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, 
That which used to condemn me now instructs me. And I love it. Now I'm in the psalmist world. Now I'm saying, oh, how I love your law. It's the delight of my heart. It's my help. It's my friend. It teaches me. It guides me. And he talks about it in salvific terms. All through it. You heard it in our passage today in the psalm, but it's one of the frequent ter- phrases that's used there in Psalms. If Psalms 119 is, you'll see this term salvation being equated with the law. And I hope right now today you understand what I mean or what he meant. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit as we come to a close. If you've understood what's going on here, then there's going to be three different ways of relating or using the law, two of which are unlawful, of which Paul would say is a wrong use of the law. I mean, one would be to keep pitting the law against grace. To think of the law as anti-grace somehow. Let's call that a low law, but a high grace kind of person. High, no, no, let's, no, actually, I'm going to, did I say low law? I'm going to get to that one next. Let's start with a high law. This is the person that has high law, but low grace. If I can pit those two kind of going. You follow me? High law is law obeying, trying to be a law obeyer, and obeying the law because I'm relying on it to make me right with God and to give me all the promises that God has given to me. It's a works righteousness way of thinking. Law obeying and law relying in order to be right with God. Works righteousness. This is a person that's going to be described this way. This person's feeling guilty all the time. Feeling guilty all the time. This person's feeling guilty all the time, and, and particularly people are really important to them. Because, see, people are the, the people that are responding to their, them in their life. They're the people who, who they're trying to please in order to satisfy not just their law, but everybody's understanding of the law for them. So they're afraid of people. These people are afraid of religion and religious topics. They'd rather just not talk about the law because it is so important to them in order to keep it, in order to get that right relation with God to be restored and to have all the blessings of life. They tend to stay away from church and say things like, well, and if someone has said that to me not, not too long ago, I, I plan to go to church one day when I get my life back together. <laughs> like going to the gym. to get I can't go to the gym until I get in shape. That's this person. But more significantly, when they do go to church, and they, if they're Christians or they live in the Christian worldview, they're going to go to church because that's part of the law. I've got to go. But they are going to stay in the margins. They don't want to get too, too close. They don't want to get too center. They're going to be in the margins. They will stay in the margins. They won't get too close to the center because it makes them feel more guilty if they do. They are in Christendom. But I would say these people are very unhappy Christians. Dutifully. Doing law. And miserable. I'll call that the moralist. Low law, I mean, uh, uh, high law, low grace. Now, the Pharisee is just a moralist plus. 
maybe even minus, depending on how you put it. The Pharisee, take everything I just said about the moralist, but at this point, they're, they're still in this law-grace dichotomy. They're still pitting law and grace, etc. But here, they're law, low law and low grace. First was high law, low grace. Now we're low law, low grace. What they do is they're typically the moralist who finally comes to the point where they're exasperated, but what they don't do is discover what we want them to discover in a minute. What they don't do is receive. What they do do is they just whittle down the law. They start taking that law and just whittling it down to the things that they feel particularly comfortable about. And more than that, they start focusing on laws that they do pretty well, but no other people don't. So now I can be pointing my finger at other people and I get my sense of being a little bit more justified this way. Oh, you know, I don't smoke cigarettes. And guess what? This person's going to talk a lot about the sins of cigarettes, if that's a sin. And you didn't hear from me. I'm not, not going there. I don't know. It's a more complex conversation. But the point is, is that they, they, they start reducing the law to the things I can do, like Corbin in the Old Testament, in New Testament with Jesus. And he says, you're, you don't, you're missing the whole law. You've reduced it to these nice little scripted things, but you've, you've forgotten the law is deeper than just don't do some particular thing. It's, it's about the heart. It's about, it's not just the don'ts, but it's also the do's that correspond to the don'ts. You know, don't rob, steal, but the assumption is the law means, if you look at Deuteronomy, that therefore give. <laughs> but they just reduced it to don't stealing, and I'm doing fine. And they forgot about the giving part. So that's the moralist and the hedonist kind of in the same group. And then you have the person, again, this issue of law and grace, where they're the hedonist. The hedonist is both low low law but high grace. So you have high law, low grace. You got low law, low grace. Now you got low law, I mean uh, low law and high grace. This is called, by the way, a potter's box. I got him, Professor Harvard, one of my professors at Harvard in ethics. This is his signature thing. You work through an analysis system. That's what I'm doing with you right now. But it's called the potter box. You don't need to know that, just so you know I'm getting it from somebody. But the low law, high grace thing is the hedonist. The hedonist is law disobeying and law not relying. Now, honestly, on the surface, these are going to be the happiest people you know. You could say they're just totally set free. Ah. Uh, I don't believe in laws. I can do the only law I recognize is that which is good for you. Do whatever makes you feel good. Tolerant, the most tolerant person in the world. You just love these kind of people. Sure, man, that's working for you. Go for it. Everybody loves hedonist. Low law, high grace. Grace centered without any standard of righteousness. There's this kind of God is in all of us. Do what's natural. Do what's right for you. The hedonist. Now again, notice what we said at the beginning of the sermon. These two ways that we can mess up the the whole law of God is who just became the exclusive Lord over that person's heart? They did. There's no God. Okay, that leads me to the final. What we are, what Paul is saying is a rightful or lawful use of the law is high grace and high law. We love both. And why do I say that? Because I am now law seeking to obey, and I am law not relying on it 
in my own keeping of the law in order to be saved. I've been restored to the law because I'm not afraid of what the law reveals, because I'm a person now that is right with God, not because I'm righteous, but because Christ is righteous that's imputed to me. How is this person going to be characterized? Well, this is a person that's going to be pretty comfortable about talking about their sin. They're going to be comfortable confessing their sins one to another. Because these are a people who know that they are forgiven in that sin by grace through faith alone. They don't have to cover up. They don't have to blame shift. These are a people who are grace-centered, but also believe in the law, even today, for instructing me in how to fulfill my destiny as one made in the image of God to glorify him. This is, personal, this is a person then who um, uh, is a gospel-centered life, you could say, but understands that the gospel loves the law and all the instruction it gives me as to how to live my life, but without that horrible weight of guilt and sin that the moralist had. Let me just uh, conclude this way. Well, I probably should conclude now. What I did this morning, though, was, was really applied it um, to the question. I was particularly thinking of baptized children who have not yet been confirmed. I'll say this for the sake of you parents, and I know we have a few uh, un, uh, baptized, unconfirmed uh, people here, so let me just say it very quickly. To you baptized children, or to those who may not be a Christian, have been confirmed or joined the church, what does the sermon say about what it means to be a Christian? More specifically, as related to when you should confirm your personal and saving faith in Jesus Christ as to be admitted to this Lord's Supper. What have we just learned? Well, first of all, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, when should you join the church? If you're a baptized person in this church as a child, you already belong to this church. You have all the rights and privileges of being a member of this church in good standing as a covenant child, we would say. So I didn't say, when are you going to become a Christian? When are you going to join this church? Secondly, I didn't say, when are you going to profess your faith in Christ? If you've been raised a covenant child in a church, you've been raised to profess faith in Christ from day one, and there's no reason for us to treat that skeptically. There's nothing wrong that you learn that from your parents and from your church. That is that old autonomous, expressive individualism of the Enlightenment that says that everybody individually has to teach themselves somehow. I hear parents say, oh, no, I don't want to bias my kids. I'm going to raise them, you know, as, as, as just agnostic and let them, bull. You do that, you're letting agnosticism train your children. And all the influence is there. That's just a hypothetical impossibility. Everyone is being trained by something. So, no, here we say it. I didn't say profess your faith in Christ. Since you were a little boy or girl, you were professing faith in Christ if you were a covenant child in a church. And you meant it to the best of your ability at that time. You certainly meant it. And I believe you meant it. You're doing great. All right? So number one, I did not say when should you join the church. You're already a member of the church if you're a covenant child. Number two, I didn't say when you can profess your faith in Christ because most likely you already are. I said, when are you going to confirm your personal and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now think about what we just learned. What we learned is, is that this three use of the law 
is going to be given first in your life is to tell you how to live your life. Through your parents and through your church, you're going to get a sense as to what that holy righteousness of God that your purpose is for in life is going to look like through the law. It's going to train you. But secondly, if you're working through the three uses of the law, it may take you a while. You may even, in stages, stage one, it might be a law that begins to convict you of sin when you say, oh, I know I shouldn't have wanted that iPad, and my dad won't let me get that iPad, and I'm just really not trusting my dad, and I went to church, and it said, honor your father and your mother. Oh, gosh, in fact, man, that's a big first experience of sin. It's your relationship with your parents, no doubt. And it goes on. But what's not yet happened in the second use of the law? Have you yet come to the place where you understand that your real problem is not that you want an iPad too bad? That wouldn't have been the problem that warranted Jesus Christ suffering the death of a cross. The very curse and wrath of hell. No, at some point, the second use of the law is going to bring you to a place where you're going to confess that it was just those are the words that you would use if you join this church, that God was justified in cursing me to hell because the sin that makes all sins is the sin of rejecting God as my exclusive Lord and rejecting the purpose he gave me to imitate him. You see, there's a brokenness to be able to discern that my sins which starts with my heart, had to be put on that man on a cross so that it could be put to death as, as justifiably it should be put to death. That's the curse of the sin. So that when Jesus is raised up, who conquers the curse of sin, I can be raised up with him into newness of life. At some level, in so many words, and again, it doesn't have to be theologically said or profound ways, you come to the place where, I'm, I don't know, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. and it directs you to the one that the law has revealed is your Savior by the one who can keep the law perfectly, who loved the Lord, his God, his Father, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and who loved his neighbors himself every single time. Just let that fit into your brain for a minute. Every single moment. This Christ loved you and the whole world by everything he did. And if you think of your membership vows to come to this table, you will first confess with faith that you do believe that you're a sinner. Justifiably under God's wrath. Secondly, you will confess that you Receive Christ. Not just a sent to him, but now you're ready to receive him. Because I'm broken. I know it. I need a savior. Lord, I put myself in your mercy. You go up to heaven one day, and you're going to say, you know, well, why should I let you into heaven? And you're going to say, honestly, you shouldn't. I came to a place where I realized that there's nothing I could do that would ever warrant this. I put my mercy, my, myself in your mercy, God, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, come on in. It's exactly what you need. That's, that's right. Come on in. It's done. It's free. And then you're going to take a vow that says, and from this day forward, 
I'm holding nothing back. I belong to Jesus Christ. And then what's going to happen? You're going to sin the next day. And you're going to go right through the law again. First use, it told me what to do. Second use, it convicted me on sin and directed me to Jesus Christ to fulfill that for me so that I can reclaim again my assurance of salvation. Third use, I'm going to commit myself yet again to more and more relying on Christ and his help to, to try more and more to keep the law. And then off you go, persevering in the cycle of the three uses of the law for the rest of your life. That's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you don't get this settled, this issue of assurance, it's going to wreak havoc in your life. And that's what this table is all about as we transition to it. This table is to confirm. You may be a Christian right now, but have you resolved the assurance issue? We want to wait, but not one day more than we should. But we want to see in you that you come to that place where you are now confirmed. You can say, yes, God is my Lord, and I was purposed to imitate him. Yes, I have sinned, and it's brought me to the place of exasperation to the point where I want a Savior and to quit relying on myself. And third, I give my life to God, restored to his law, seeking daily to follow him to the best I can. And when I can't, I go back and back through the cycle. That's what it means. But get it straight. Because if you don't have assurance in this room right now, it's going to create a lot of problems. It's going to change the way you deal with suffering, thinking God's mad at you still. It's going to change the way you wait with other people, always trying to justify yourself still. In this relationship, it's going to be acidic to you. Because you're going to constantly either be blame shifting to the person you're with or you're going to be blaming yourself with the person you're with. There's all kinds of problems that come out. And most importantly, you're not going to be restored to the law because you're still afraid of it. Let's pray.